And now please turn forward in your Bibles to the book of Hosea and chapter 14. The book of the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 14, and we're going to read the whole chapter from verse 1 through verse 9. Again, please give your careful attention as we read God's Word. Hosea 14 at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy." I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath My shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon." O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. There are two sides in every marriage relationship, and it requires the full commitment and investment of both spouses to make it a success. Here in the final chapter of the book of Hosea, both sides of a saving relationship are set out. 
at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 13, the northern kingdom, the house of Ephraim, fell under God's judgment in the Assyrian conquest. And now, as we come to the final chapter of the book, chapter 14, Hosea turns from that dreadful event to return to the theme of sinners yet finding grace with an unfailing God of mercy and grace. Now, it may seem as we are transitioning from chapter 13 to chapter 14 that Hosea's final offer of the gospel here has come too late. The judgment has already fallen on Israel, on Ephraim. The cities of northern Israel lie in ruin. The survivors are heading into exile in Assyria, never to physically return to the land of Canaan. These facts show us that the prophet here is no longer speaking to the people as a nation. They no longer were that. They have been conquered, destroyed, despoiled, and what's left taken into exile. But rather, he still yet speaks to Israelites as individual sinners, those who yet can still be saved by turning in repentance to the God of grace and mercy. Using Hosea's very language and the pictures here before us, the mother, Israel, is dead. But yet, the children, though orphaned, are still alive, some of them. What hope is there for these children? Well, here in the expression of faith in God's compassion that we read in verse 3 of chapter 14, here is the hope for such in you, in the Lord, the orphan finds mercy. And so it is in the light of that wonderful reality, the Lord responds lovingly to such trusting faith, verse 4, I will love them freely. And so, as one commentator summarizes uh, this chapter, he says here, quote, This appeal is God's last word, a word that is to sustain the people even during the coming days of captivity, end quote. So, how might we summarize this final chapter of the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 14? We can do so like this. It maps out the pathway of a repentant faith, promising forgiveness and restoration for penitent sinners. This evening, we are going to make a beginning, but will not complete the exposition of this chapter. We are going to focus mainly on the first three verses, and as we do so, we are going to open them up under two headings. First of all, a renewed appeal, and then secondly, supplied words. So, first of all, then a renewed appeal, 
verse 1a. As we've already noted, the people of the northern kingdom had been conquered and many destroyed, killed, others going into exile. And so those who survived must have looked at the dreadful events that culminated in 722 BC, the final and total conquest by Assyria, as the end for them. This is the end. But nevertheless, from the long view of the uh, Scriptures of biblical history, uh, from the big picture beyond their immediate historical circumstance, in many ways it was really a new beginning for them, for those who survived. If you like to think about it dramatically in terms of pictures, as the smoke, as it were, clears over the city of Samaria, the capital, after the final assault of Assyria, the voice of the prophet is heard again here. And the voice of the prophet comes with a message from God which is a renewed appeal from the Lord. Verse 1a, return, O Israel, to the Lord a renewed appeal, return, O Israel, to the Lord. Here the heart of God is towards yet still His people. That same uh, echo, of course, is reflected in the words of the Lord Jesus Himself as He came. You remember that same appeal in the heart of the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together? Here we have that same sentiment in Old Testament language of the Lord. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. And so we see here the Lord calls to the shattered people of Israel with His continuing offer of salvation to all those who would repent and return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Well, then that brings us in the second place to supplied words, supplied words from verse 1b through verse 3. Hosea follows his appeal, his plea, with instruction about how Israel should return to the Lord. He's appealed to them on behalf of God, return, but how are they to do that? Well, they're not left to wonder. They're not left to invent their own way to do this. Hosea, as the Lord's spokesman, instructs them how they are to do this. Though the nation had been destroyed, the people, the individuals, could still be restored to God's grace and favor. What does that tell us this evening? It tells us that God is a God of great grace and mercy for sinners who will heed His appeal to repent and believe, and instructs them even with how to do that. Supplies, as we will see, the very words with which to do that. That's a great encouragement to anyone here this evening who would turn, return to the Lord. If you feel that sense of conviction of sin, 
that condemnation that rests over you by nature of being born in sin, shape, and in iniquity. Here we have the instruction of the prophet of how to return. So a sinner be a guilty sinner and one who is distanced from the Lord in that sin, not yet reconciled. There is still that enmity between the sinner and the holy God. This message gives you, whoever you might be, words for returning to the Lord, words that you can bank on, that God will hear and receive. And so here we have what we might call a path of true repentance, according to the prophet Hosea. It begins, first of all, with the why of salvation. Why is salvation necessary? Why do they have to return and bring these words? Verse 1b, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. This tells us that the people of Israel, Ephraim, were not conquered by the Assyrians because of some chance event of history. They were not just caught up in some big empire expansion project of the Assyrians. A little nation in the wrong place at the wrong time, it was not because of that. Much less was it because that God had somehow failed them in the face of such an aggressor. God here makes it clear it was because of divine judgment for their sins. Return, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In what ways had they stumbled? With respect to their idolatry, their immorality, their faithlessness in trusting in nations around them rather than in the Lord their God, in their many different but failing and faithless political strategies, making covenants and breaking them. This is how they had stumbled. Notice here the word that the prophet uses to describe, as it were, their entire approach to how to find security and prosperity. The Lord says it was iniquity. It was iniquity. This description would include all those things that we've seen as we've gone through the book again and again, included the succession of their kings, most of whom were murdered by their successors. It would include the great immorality of their following, the fertility cult and religion of the pagan god Baal in Canaan. It would include the violent depravity that characterized their civic life, of which we read. It would include the constant breaking of their treaties in search of political advantage. And so here the prophet uses the language that sums up that Israel simply could not walk steadily and uprightly. You have stumbled, the Lord says, because of your iniquity. And so we learn here that the path of true repentance begins by admission that the misery we have suffered as sinners has been caused by our own sins. It's been caused by our own sins. 
course, from the very beginning, the natural heart of the sinner wants to blame somebody else. What did Adam say when confronted with his sin? The woman you gave me, he said to the Lord, wasn't me. But the path of true repentance must begin with admission that the misery we are suffering is because of our own sins. We are responsible for what has come to us. In a very great irony, the way of sin, iniquity, transgression may have seemed at first a very obvious path, a direct route to success. I'm sure it must have been often to these Israelites. That's why they did what they did. But it soon produced something else, didn't it? It brought to them divine judgment. As we might say, it led them to a dead end, to a blind alleyway out of which there was no escape. And so Israel here had to learn, perhaps bitterly, the words of the Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the treacherous is their ruin, and so it had come to them. And so repentance begins with conviction of sin and acknowledgement that the mess we find ourselves in, the misery that results from that, is of our own doing. As we do that, we are to admit that it's not just we've kind of made a mistake here and there, though that must be very true, but somehow we have erred in small and insignificant ways, but rather it is a full and open and complete admission, even as David did as he confessed his sin, Psalm uh, 51, even as he acknowledges when confronted by Nathan the prophet, 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David called his sin what it was, and so are we to do if we are to return to the Lord. Notice that after David had made that confession, as he records in Psalm 51, he prayed, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So we see in that great confession of David, he admits that this was his fault. Couldn't point the finger anywhere else. It was his fault that judgment had come to him, that God was just in such judgments, and no fault was to be attributed to anyone else but himself. And so it is that we are to speak as sinners by nature that we are at fault. I have sinned, and against you, you only, have I sinned, O Lord. But then secondly, Hosea notes that in the path, the true path of true repentance, he notes the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer. Verse 2a, take with you words and return to the Lord. Well, the obvious question, of course, here is, well, what words are we to take? What words should we say when we return to the Lord in true penitence? Well, we are given them here, verse 2b. 
It's an appeal to God's saving mercy. Say to him, take away all iniquity. One commentator helpfully puts it like this. He says, quote, We must come to God solely on the basis of His grace, not imagining that in spite of our sins, there is nevertheless some merit in us to commend us to God. End quote. The words that we take are words that cast ourselves entirely, completely, solely on God's mercy. Take away all iniquity. And so, when we realize our sin, and when we pray to God, bringing the words that He teaches us in such circumstances, the only place to begin is with an appeal to God's sovereign mercy and to His saving grace. Notice again, that was what David did in his great penitential psalm, Psalm 51, this time verse 1. How does he begin? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Well, then thirdly, on this path of true penitence, that prayer must appeal specifically to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Of course, we come to that by setting this specific phrase in the context of all of Scripture. What do we mean when we say, take away all iniquity? When we say, have mercy. How can God have mercy on guilty sinners like us? Only in mercy that is for us and toward us in Jesus Christ, the one that God has appointed to save such sinners. Now, here is something that many who seek repentance can tend to forget. We are to turn from sin. There is no doubt about that. That's what repentance is all about. But at the same time as we turn from sin, we are to turn to that grace that is freely offered to sinners who turn from their sins, grace in and through Jesus Christ. Grace for sinners like you. Grace for sinners like me. That grace and mercy that is in Jesus Christ the Lord. So, as we appeal to God for such mercy, we appeal specifically, solely, exclusively to the mercy that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Old Testament terms, we find the prophet Jonah doing exactly that. He sought that kind of mercy when he prayed from the belly of the great fish, you remember. Jonah 2 verse 4, Jonah prays, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Well, you might ask, well, now wait a minute. How do you get to say he is appealing to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ when he says, I shall again look upon your holy temple? Of course, this is the prayer of penitence, the prayer of faith in Old Testament language. What was the temple? 
The temple was the place where the atoning sacrifices were offered. David uses such similar language and expressions. Again, Psalm 51, this time verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, he says. Referring there to that spongy brush of hyssop that the priests used to sprinkle the atoning blood that was offered in tabernacle and temple. And so the reality to which both Jonah and David looked in the types and symbols of the Old Testament was, of course, the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ as we thought of it this morning, the great cross of Jesus Christ, where the true Lamb of God was sacrificed for sin. We look to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Hence then, Paul, in the full light of New Testament revelation, can write Romans 3 at verse 24, that we find forgiving mercy, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so, when we read here in the book of Hosea, take words and return to the Lord. It is the words of confession and repentance and the words of faith in the Lord Jesus, specifically in the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus, where we are assured to find saving mercy. The hymn writer, I've been reflecting, as you can probably tell in these recent sermons, of these great hymns that speak of the blood of our Savior. The hymn writer asked, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? The hymn writer asks, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, then, fourthly, on this path of true repentance, this expressed faith is to be expressed in the sincere surrender of ourselves, the, the sincere surrender of ourselves. We go on in verse 2, it's the third part, to see, to say, we say to God then, accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Now, as good Protestant Reformed people, we might just read that phrase again and go, now, wait a minute, accept what is good. What is the prophet saying here? We know the book of Romans well enough, there is none good, no, not one. What is he referring to here when he says, take these words and pray to God, accept what is good? Well, Hosea means here that we ask God to accept our confession and expressed faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, not because if there's any merit in that in and of itself, but by treating it as the right response to the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that sense, it is the good response 
commandments, that which God commands sinners to do, repent and believe, to freely accept His mercy and grace as it is offered to sinners like you and me. Accept what is good. That is the good. The gospel as it is freely offered to all and then as it is received. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. It's not that our repentance or our faith deserve salvation. That is not the foundation of our salvation. It's not the basis of it. That's why our forefathers very carefully, when they spoke of faith, they spoke of it as an instrument of faith. They never said, because they understood the issue here, that if you say faith is the, in, is the foundation, then it's that itself that's saving you. And it is not. It is Christ who saves us. And the instrument is faith in Him. But it is Christ Himself who is the great foundation. So our repentance, our faith, does not earn us salvation. It's not the basis of our salvation, the foundation of our salvation. But we ask God to receive our repentance and our expressed faith as they are given to us as gifts in and through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that basis and on that understanding, we pray, accept what is good, O Lord. Hosea then refers to a renewed commitment to serve and worship the Lord as then a true believer, one who has been saved, received the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Again, it was the experience of David, Psalm 51 again, verse 15 and following. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so it is that... We can never return our hearts to the Lord until we know that they are cleansed by the atoning blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which is why we must first appeal to the saving work of Christ. But, and this is also important to understand in the Christian life, that having been the case having appealed exclusively to the merits of Christ to save us, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, having done that and received God's mercy, the response to that, the right response to that, that true response, that true repentance will have a fruit. Having cried out for mercy to God, having received it, the response will always then be a continued, renewed offering of oneself out of gratitude and thankfulness in service to the Lord. And that's that which Hosea speaks of here when he says, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Again, it's expressed in the Old Testament a language of the ceremonial sacrifices, but it is the, the picture of that offering according to the way that God has commanded, that we worship Him, that we follow Him, that we obey Him. 
that is always going to be the um, necessary consequence of all those who truly have turned to God, repenting, returning to the Lord, and bringing these words with them. Hosea then concludes this section with a resolve that is necessary for repentance to be complete. Now, in Israel's case, this resolve focused in a renunciation of their trust in worldly powers, uh, in renouncing all of those ways in which they try to make allegiance with the powers around them, be it Assyria, be it Egypt, be it any others. Their trust in horses and chariots and the great uh, battle um, uh, hardware of the ancient world. Of course, today for us it is different. It's not those things. But in like manner, today we might realize we have been trusting in a whole host of other things. It's not Assyria, I'm sure. And it's not horses and chariots, I'm pretty sure. But it may be in our career success. We thought that was the means to our happiness and our satisfaction. It may have been to amass riches and wealth. That was the way we thought we would be happy and contented. It may have been to the cultivation of our image and thinking that all people would think well of us whether we be men or women or boys or girls. It may be the idol of popularity we thought would give us security and fulfillment. But like the ancient Israelite had to turn from Assyria, turn from horses and chariots, we must turn from all of those things. Those siren voices of the modern, postmodern world we must pray as David prayed, 50, Psalm 51 verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is probably an appropriate place in this sermon to ask that question of ourselves, not looking to anybody else, but looking to our own hearts, and ask ourselves, what, if anything, have we been putting in the place of God? usurping His rightful place. Assyria, horses, chariots, success, wealth, our own image, popularity, whatever it might be. Again, it is different in our day and generation from the ancient world, but it's still there. We might put it like this, to what have you committed yourself as the source of true meaning in life? What do you give your energy to? What do you give much of what you think about to? Thinking this is what's most important. Let me make some, again, suggestions. We could add to these and multiply them. Is it a prosperous lifestyle? Is it a political cause? Is it a romantic relationship? Is it even some illicit pleasure? Is it some excessive allegiance to something in and of itself might be 
appropriate and legitimate, but you've allowed it to become an idol. It started as being a good gift of God, but actually now it's one of those things that we've often spoken about over the years in sermons about idolatry, that actually you say, if God took that from me, I would say, now my life is over. I cannot live without it. There is only one of whom we can say that if we are Christians. That's God Himself. Though other things may be of the great gift of God to us in His kindness and benevolence, yet if God should see fit in His sovereign wisdom to remove it, our right response in trust in the Lord is to say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet so often an excessive allegiance to the things of this world, even the good gifts of God, results in idolatry. But here what Hosea is saying is if we turn in, return in true penitence, if we bring these words that God teaches us to pray, then all such idols, all such replacements for God upon the throne of our hearts have to be let go. You can't have them all. You can't have both. It is God or not at all. Now, one last question I want to bring to us before we close this evening, this section of Hosea 14. If you do contemplate returning to the Lord, will God receive you? Maybe you say, okay, I'm persuaded. I hear what you say. I'm ready to return to the Lord and to bring these words. Question, will God accept you? Or is there the chance, even the smallest chance, that God will say, mm -mm, no, no, I'm not going to do it? Can it be, even as we are thinking in our uh, all-age Sunday school, that though God has said it, in reality, He is a God who can change? And is there the smallest possibility that when you come to do it, God will say, not for you, not for you. The great assurance of the Holy Scripture is that is not possible. It is not the case. Here in verse 3 of Hosea 14, it confesses the confidence in God's grace that empowers our repentance as sinners. Certainly, Israel as a nation was no more. The people were orphaned from their now, to use graphic picture language of one of the commentators, he says, quote, from their now slain mother. But Hosea encourages that all such, even though orphaned from mother Israel as a nation, for such God is a sure source of help and He gives His unequivocal promise and assurance. Verse 3, in you the orphan finds mercy. Not may find, finds mercy. This takes us back to the very beginning of the book, Hosea chapter 1. Remember there how the Lord used the picture of the prophet and his marriage and his family, where God seemingly washed His hands of Israel as an adulterous people. 
Remember how God told Hosea to name his first child? Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Hosea 1.15. And then when a son was born, God told the prophet to call him a different name. The name Lo Ami, not my people. For you are not my people, God says, and I am not your God. Hosea 1 9. These names of the children of Hosea and Gomer showed God's holy revulsion at a people awash in the sin of spiritual adultery. But even then, this is the great glory of the mercy and grace of God. Even then, however, the Lord remembered His covenant and spoke of a time to come when He said, in the place where it was said to them, you are not My people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Say to your brothers, you are My people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Hosea 1.10 and Hosea 2 verse 1. This is the great assurance to all who will return and to bring those very words that God has given. He will honor those words. He will never say, uh-uh, I am not going to do it. He will not change. There never will a day come when He will do that to all who will tread this true path of true repentance. Even when, and perhaps especially when, we may feel left orphaned in this world, either physically or in any other way, we feel that we are fatherless and motherless. And particularly when we think about that in terms of the failed promises of sin and this world, in the end, they will leave you as an orphan. They will. But even when you have come to that bitter truth and knowledge, the promise of God is those who repent will find a home. They will find a home in the house of the Lord. They'll find a home with the Lord as a true Father. In you, the orphan finds mercy. May God so grant it to each one of us. Amen. Let's all pray. Our Father, again, we are reminded of the serious consequences of sin, how it has ruined mankind, even from the fall of Adam in the garden. And yet, O oh Lord, against that backdrop, pictured here in terms of Your divine judgment against Israel in the Assyrian invasion and conquest, yet still You offered Your mercy, Your grace, appealing return to the Lord, and even offering those very words, 
so that we're not left to stumble and stammer and wonder what to say. You, in your grace and mercy, even supply the very words to take. Take away our iniquity, O Lord. And so we would pray again, even in that continuing life in this world of repentance and faith. And we would ask that each one here this evening, even some perhaps for the very first time, would pray such a prayer of true repentance and seeking that mercy which is in Jesus Christ the Lord. Here as we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.